This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Pat Kinane. Pat was Barack Obama's senior writer and deputy director of messaging during the Obama presidency. Pat joined me to talk about his new book, West Winging It, an unpresidential memoir ahead of his appearance at the Wheeler Centre. I am lucky to have seen um, the uh, the co- a copy of it, and I've just been devouring it with great interest. So I'm very excited now uh, to speak with Pat ahead of his talk tonight at the Wheeler Centre. Hi, Pat. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on, Amy. Thank you for joining us. Um, it's so fascinating to get this firsthand uh, account, your account um, and memoir as to your time in the White House. Uh, and I mean, you started off uh, in, you know, I guess the lowest level uh, as intern and worked your way up and you're right. not, um, similarly, your colleagues uh, who were of a, of a similar age, millennials, as you say, uh, were also key people in this administration, particularly uh, in communications and the press offices. So um, I'd like to start with your particular, um, your formative influences, I guess, because you cover that uh, at the beginning of the book is your family who, particularly the women in your family, are heavily engaged in politics, uh, your grandmother and your mother. So how how did that really form you as a person? And, you know, could you um, share with the listeners their particular, their way of participating in politics in America? Sure. Yeah. Um, Like you said, my family was in very strong influence on me politically, um, starting with my Nana. So my grandmother, um, who is a very spunky, um, you know, now 86 year old woman who for as long as I've known her, which is my whole life, uh, for my whole life, she has been, um, a strident Democrat. So in the U S we have Democrats and Republicans and my Nana, uh, likes to joke that she was actually baptized a Democrat not a Catholic. So it's always been in the background ever since I grew up. Um, my dad likes to tell a story about how instead of going to the park when he was a kid, his mother would take him to sit-ins and protests and stuff like that. So very, it was very much uh, in the background as I grew up. And then my mom and dad met on a political campaign they were volunteering in the 70s on. So I was definitely very literally born uh, out of politics. And then I really had my first spark of interest in politics in 2004 when I heard this guy with this crazy name, Barack Obama, give a speech um, to the Democratic National Convention, and he spoke for 17 minutes, and that was my first spark uh, uh, of interest in actually getting involved somehow in politics. Obviously, I had no idea what I would do or how I would do it, um, and then I, I got lucky down the line, of course. Yes, and your family really do have um, a hilarious uh, dynamic and the stories that you recount are very entertaining. (laughs) Um, It sounds like a great time growing up in your family. And uh, one of the things I found really interesting is that the university you ended up at uh, was decided on a TV show, particularly Larry King's show. And and funnily enough, in your book, um, he is called A Man of Uncommon Sense. So I'm happy to get behind that decision yes um i i was very happy with it too my mom and i were at odds everywhere i would go to school i wanted to go to miami which is in florida and beautiful weather and it just helped me where my girlfriend was going and my mom wanted me to go to georgetown in dc because like i said earlier she's obsessed with politics and towards the very end of our month-long battle 
Larry King, a man, like you say, of uncommon sense, uh, had his show on and Dr. Phil was on and my mom called in as a joke. Um, and somehow shockingly she got through and she told them of our dilemma, which was ludicrous in and of itself that this got through because there are people with real problems and this wasn't a real problem. But, uh, Larry King and Dr. Phil both said, uh, it was time for me to go to Miami and that's where I went. And then I ended up in DC anyway. So it all sort of worked out. But uh, it was thanks largely to Larry King and Dr. Phil, <laughs> which is ridiculous. It is kind of hilarious, maybe only in America. But, um, yeah, it's certainly really entertaining. And you are an early bloomer. <laughs> um, not only did you find your uh, future wife very early uh, in school, but you also started your career working in politics straight out of college um, and you started as an intern. Can you tell us um, why you decided to apply and the kind of environment that you were thrust into? Yeah, sure. And this is really why I wanted to write this book in the first place. It's, it's almost less about what I was doing towards the end of my term and more about what it was like going to the White House as a 22-year-old who really didn't know anything. Um, but, but the way it came about is basically I was in college uh, I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I was interested in politics. I had written some opinion pieces. You know, I was supportive of Barack Obama as he was running for the fir for his first term. And then my roommate um, named Chris, he basically said, hey, you have no clue what you want to do. Why don't you just apply for a White House internship? And at this point, I didn't even know that they had White House internships. Um, I thought they had canceled those after the whole Monica Lewinsky thing. <laughs> but they didn't, fortunately, and I applied on a whim, um, and I initially didn't get it, and then I applied again right away, and I got it. And I went in there as a 22-year-old, fresh out of college. Again, I really didn't know much. I had sort of a knack for writing, um, and I had put a lot of work into my application. And then I just somehow never left, <laughs> never left until uh, the last, uh, last day of the administration, really. So I walked in at 22 and I really didn't walk out again until I was 29. It's quite amazing, really. And you've had a huge uh, range of roles in that time. You jumped from intern up to, um, I guess, an entry-level position uh, in the White House communications team, which was a media monitor. And you talk about the intensity right. of that job and that the, your predecessor uh, was hospitalised for exhaustion. I mean, does that indicate the kind of um, work ethic and also how, how it might consume one's life, being involved in that, in politics, but also at the epicentre? So it definitely does, although... So my predecessor uh, was hospitalised for exhaustion and my successor had to be put in a... Uh, a brace because of excessive copying and pasting. So her wrist was undone by excessive copying and pasting. I fortunately didn't have any side effects. I think that's because I probably was not as hard a worker as those two who were both magnificent media monitors, whereas I wasn't great. But fortunately, I, um, after about eight months, I moved on from that position. But it, it was definitely an interesting way to be introduced into politics where you're just it's rapid fire, 16, you know, 15, 16 hours a day, just the deluge of information. And D.C. really does run on information. So the media monitor, though it's the most entry level, lowest level position you can have, it's, uh, it's an, it has an outsized importance. 
Exactly. And to give um, listeners an understanding of the scale, your predecessor um, was providing up to a thousand media clips a day. Now that means that the person obviously has, you know, looked at the clip, um, processed that information and then decided who to send it on to. I mean, did you feel bombarded by the amount of information that you were consuming? I did. And it was just a fascinating way to learn that really the White House isn't just about you know, what happens at the Capitol or what happens at the Supreme Court and in the White House. No matter what happens across the country, the White House is expected to respond or to be aware. So just the breadth of stories that uh, the White House needed to know about was kind of shocking to me. Exactly. And uh, you go on in the book to talk about the relationship between the White House and the press uh, and that it really is about principles of democracy and openness. Uh, And you write that uh, we knew something that we thought was obvious, um, something we thought never needed to be said, but maybe it does. The press is not the enemy of the American people. And you talk about that. um, It's an antagonistic relationship, but it's really an important one. And, uh, and, that kind of closeness of proximity between your office and the press is something that is also quite fascinating. Could you share with us the kind of relationship and dynamics that you had uh, with the press during your time there? Right, sure. Well, that line from the book obviously um, is in reference to a quote that our current president, Donald Trump, made about the press, where he actually did call them the the enemy of the American people, um, which is just ludicrous uh, on its face and a dangerous thing to say. But that's another reason I thought uh, it was important for the end of the book to really talk about what it should and what it used to be um, to have a relationship between the White House and the press. Um, because it's interesting, I worked in a, in, a, in a bullpen area called Upper Press, which was about 30 feet from the Oval Office on one side and 30 feet from the press briefing room on the other side. And it was a very important reminder just geographically that this is the press's office too. Like we weren't the only public servants who came to work at the White House. The press came in every single day to do their job as well. And they are very much the fourth estate and the American people depend on them to uh, relay what we're doing in a fair way. Um, so it's a ver- there's a very natural and healthy tension. And we you know, were often mad at the press and the press were often mad at us. But um, we, what we did was we maintained the trust in a basic set of facts to work off of, which which is something that we're losing a little bit uh, in the current climate in America with uh, Donald Trump. Yes, we're losing... But many of the reporters, you know, we're, yeah, we're losing that, but but it was important to us because, you know, we, we got to know these people. I was stuck in, in vans with them for 13, 14 hours a day sometimes, so you really, when you see these reporters and these uh, producers and these cameramen and women, you understand that they're doing their job, and their job is just as important as your job. Exactly. And as you referenced there, we're losing that shared, established base of fact. And uh, and the facts are now contested, or as Kellyanne Conway says, there are alternative facts, which is mind-boggling. Right. So, and I'm really interested that um, one of the anecdotes you provide, which really highlights this uh, kind of 
fun but also highly intense and very serious environment is that um, because you're just so close to the press area um, you could often you know up until a point not be aware that um, the press were walking down the corridor um, close to a conversation you might be having that is you know pretty important confidential and you put in place uh, a particular system could you share with us um, how you managed to keep everything under wraps (laughs) <laughs> That's right. So again, you know, we we viewed the press um, as I- incredibly valuable, but we also uh, we had our job to do too. So if we were talking about a decision that hadn't yet been made, you know, we didn't want the press to hear that. So what was weird about our spot was that there weren't really many doors where we worked. So I sat in an open area bullpen, and the press were just free to wander up. They couldn't walk past us towards the oval, but they could come right in because again, it just underscored that this was a shared space and. And the press uh, deserved to be there. But what we did was we had screen protectors on our on our computers, which hardly ever works. But there was this guy who sat behind me named Peter, and when he he had the best view down the hall. So when a reporter started heading down the hall, he would shout the reporter's name um, and say, you know, Politico's in the house or the Wall Street Journal's in the house, just so if our bosses were talking about something super important, they could run into their, their offices or we could close whatever documents we were working on. So there was, it, was, it was sort of that natural, healthy tension I was talking about where they were our peers, but we obviously couldn't be telling them everything we were doing and thinking at every moment. Um, but it was just one of those super awkward things about working in the West Wing, um, is that the, the press can just roam around and, and do as they please. Exactly. And uh, you had a great deal of collegiality between your own colleagues um, in that press division. uh, And you talk about how they became more like a family than anything else. Um, And I really, I'm interested in that because as you say, you spent more time with these people than you did your own families at many points. I mean, how, what kind of um, relationship did you have uh, to each other and how did that keep you all going? Well, yeah, that's a really important thing, and that's another big reason that I wanted to write the book, is that we were a bunch of kids, really, like 20-somethings, who came to wa- came to Washington thinking, you know, maybe we can do a little good for the country. And along the way, we learned that, you know, sometimes we can, a lot of times it's not so easy. But what we really learned is that there were all these people, all these, you know, kids from all across the country uh, who had the same interest as we did, and we were just, it's sort of a, it's almost a foxhole mentality, but in the best in the best possible sense. So we were all working uh, enormous, enormously long days and dealing with just truly bizarre circumstances and traveling around the world and across the country. And so it really, you're just forced together and you become friends or you become, you know, pretend enemies, but really deep down you're friends. And it did begin to feel after a few months in there, like I had, I had developed this whole second family, this Obama family. And what's so interesting to me is the number of weddings I've been to since I've left the White House that were relationships that started uh, in the West Wing or in the White House. It's been really great to see. So the Obama family is sort of expanding, even though the administration has ended. That's a pretty rare thing, I think, that, um, you know, you develop such really close contact with people at work and then continue it outside of work. I think that's the, the unique part. And that's the thing that's so shocking now, now that I read, I'm sure you guys see them too, these stories that bombard uh, the papers and TV all the time about all the inciting in the Trump administration and people sort of stabbing each other in the back and throwing each other under the bus. 
that sort of thing, you know, it'll happen everywhere, but it didn't happen nearly to this extent. It's just... Mm. It's just sort of shocking what's going on right now. Yeah, exactly. And another contrast uh, to now and uh, and your situation, as you say, you talk about the diversity, which just seemed to come naturally in your team. Um, at one point, you were the only white person in your particular group of um, workers, and it had such a interesting mix of people that it became a strength um, in your team. Can you talk about how important it was not only to have um, a you know a group of young people who weren't obviously, um, you know, judged or um, there wasn't obviously as much ageism really if you've been given such a great deal of responsibility in those roles. But yeah, what about the diversity that you had in that particular group? Yeah, it was really interesting. It just seemed like the pool of people and the pool of talent that was drawn to the Obama White House and the Obama campaign were, you know, people just from every different walk of life, every different background, every different religion, um, it, it just didn't matter. There were people who were inspired by President Obama or then candidate Obama. And it really added to the place. It was such, it, was, it sounds corny, but the diversity was really a strength. Um, and it also made for plenty of, you know, funny encounters and learning from each other. And it just wouldn't have been nearly the same. You, you look at some of the pictures now and um, it's sort of sad that it's, that it, it's so different now. It's sort of like we've gone back 40 years mm. uh, in terms of the makeup of the place. But our, our White House, just it was, you know, diverse. And also it was just a lot of fun, too, um, which is something people don't talk about quite as much. But I hope that comes through in the book, that we had all these funny, bizarre experiences. And it was just, you know, we were doing our best. And there were also many terrible days. But by and large, it was great. Absolutely. It definitely comes through and it feels like uh, we're there with you the whole way. And it really has a lot of um, colour and richness to it. Uh, and it, it certainly has the tone of a memoir and a story that's being told. And it's quite amazing that it is nonfiction. Um, and one of the things right. I'm yeah, particularly interested in is your role and how it would be um, doing the role of a writer and um, being in charge of messaging as the deputy director there, um, when the person that you're working for and the person that you're crafting these messages for uh, is an orator themselves and as you write, he is a writer, an author, a speech writer before he ever was a professor or a politician or a president. And of course, we're talking about Barack Obama. So, I mean, you know, given he had such skill uh, and that's something he's widely known for, how did you take on that task of, um, of writing for him? Right. Well, it's really interesting. Well, first of all, I should say there are, there were a ton of extremely talented writers in the building. First and foremost, the sort of speech writing team that that was their sole focus i lived in this sort of in this weird split universe where i spent about half my time writing for him and half my time doing message planning but your question is a really good one because president obama really did to me it seemed consider himself a writer first and sometimes that manifested itself in funny ways for instance i remember i was tasked with writing you know it was not an important thing but i was tasked with writing a half a page about Aretha Franklin for uh, the New Yorker magazine. Uh, just sort of something from the, in the president's voice about how much he loves Aretha Franklin. And so I thought, okay, I'll dive in. And I actually struggled with it a lot. I just, I, I, I don't write about music well. I'm just 
not musically inclined, so I struggled with it. So, so I sent it to a speechwriter, a high-up speechwriter, who really helped with it and did a great job. And I thought, you know what, this, this is perfect. You can't get better. And then we sent it to Obama for his review, and I thought, no way he'll take pen to this. It's not important enough. But he totally changed it around, and it came back to our desk, and it was magnificent. And it was just this reminder that, oh, he's the most powerful person in the world, and he has a lot more important things to be dealing with. But he took five minutes to tweak this, and it's so much better. So it was definitely an intimidating thing to write to write for him or for, you know, I also wrote for other people in the building. It was intimidating to write for everyone but for President Obama in particular. But it was also just a great honor. And when you would write something that wouldn't get many edits, it was just sort of a little minor personal thrill um, that I sort of take with me now. Absolutely. And one of the speeches that sticks out in my mind, um, and I'm sure many others, was uh, after um, I think toddlers had been killed um, and he came out and delivered what it seemed like was an off-the-cuff speech um, to talk about uh, some executive orders that he was going to make on gun control and that was in January 2016 and I wonder when it comes to those really um, sad and unpredictable uh, events what happens behind the scenes in order to get to a point where the president can come out and deliver such a really important and moving speech that is seeking to, I guess, rouse those gun owners who would be on his side, who would not necessarily, um, you know, fall with the gun lobby and who, you know, he wants to garner their support but also come across as, um, you know, empathetic and, and really express the full emotion of the situation. What kind of things happen in a situation like that? Well, this is something we unfortunately dealt with a lot. Um, the president sort of became known as the consoler in chief because he had to deal with so many mass shootings in America. And he's described it as the most frustrating part of his presidency that after the Sandy Hook shooting, which happened in December 2012 in Connecticut, where 26 people were killed, 20 of them were, you know, first and second graders. Uh, that Congress still didn't act. It was shocking to him. It was shocking to all of us. But we dealt, so sadly, we dealt with a lot of these sorts of things. And normally what happens is um, information starts to come in through uh, very initial news reports and oftentimes tweets, and then the situation, situation room gets involved, uh, and then you sort of realize, oh, this is serious. And then the decision needs to be made, does the president go out and speak immediately? And if so, he'll go usually to the press briefing room and deliver remarks, and then further considerations need to be made for whether or not the president should actually travel to where the horror occurred. My sort of most direct experience with this was, in fact, Sandy Hook, because back then in 2012, I was a press wrangler, which meant I was in charge of minding the press and traveling with the president wherever he went, from, you know, from Africa to down the, down the street for one of his daughter's basketball practices. And so that was a very startling trip for me when we went to Sandy Hook and sat in that auditorium with all those grieving families and friends as the president delivered his message. And, you know, it's really, in terms of the speeches, those are speeches that he and his chief speechwriter worked on extremely closely. And he took, you know, a great, he put a great deal of time and emphasis on. And he had this, he had the right mix, I think, of being consoling, um, but also being direct with the American people and saying this doesn't need to happen and we can do something about this and challenging the American people while their eyes are open to actually do something. Unfortunately, Congress never did, 
but the you know the numbers in terms of polling on what Americans want um, fits with what the president was calling for in the wake of those shootings. Mm. But it was always it was it was a really difficult time in the White House whenever those things would happen. You're right. It did happen very often, um, and it seemed like after each one, the frustration built uh, in terms of him having to come out and deliver another speech and talk about this again, um, because obviously all of these tragedies keep accumulating. Um, But one of the things that I think is really um, striking about his political speeches uh, is the clarity of speech, the simplicity of the language, although sometimes it's obviously, you know, at a higher level, but it's not um, over the heads of others and it's not um, it's not opaque and it's not using management speak, which a lot of politicians can fall into nowadays, is just this descent into right. meaningless kind of language. He seemed to really... Um, yeah have so much clarity and purpose in his language. What was what were the kind of key principles or tenets that you were thinking about and the speechwriters there thought about when you would put together a speech for Obama? Because he obviously has a certain way of delivering speeches and a certain way of speaking that is quite different from his uh, colleagues, uh, other leaders of the world and other countries. Well, that's right. And he sort of had a knack for cutting through the clutter. And like you say, the management speak and, and a lot of the jargon that politicians use. And, he, you know, the best advice I could give to anyone who's working on political messaging or political speech from the lowest level, you know, uh, race you could run up, in, up to the presidency is to speak like a person. Speak like the way people talk to each other. Don't, you know, so many politicians try to pull off this lofty air and first of all most of them can't pull it off but second secondly you sort of you lose the crowd if you're not connecting with them and president obama had this uh, ability to both you know use soaring rhetoric and inspire people but also to make his point and make it clearly and uh not beat you over the head with it but just make you see oh this is what this guy is talking about so it's it's to me the most pos- the simplest way to put it is Write a speech the way people talk to each other. That's the only way anybody's going to listen to your speech. Or I shouldn't say that. That's the way people are going to uh, internalize and understand your speech and maybe be persuaded by it, which is ultimately what everybody's trying to do with the speech is persuade people and make an argument. And I think President Obama was so skilled at that because he started out as a lawyer and making an argument is something that's fun to him. So that's, I think, why he was so successful. Yeah, and he also, I mean, you could say he was a human and he showed his humanity many times um, and that's a way that he made himself right. so relatable but still had, as you say, those that soaring rhetoric and that authority um, from which he spoke. Uh, one of the interesting things for me was his sense of humour um, and I know that uh, one of the examples um, that directly involves you is uh, the segment for comedians in cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, uh, which you co-wrote with him for um, Obama. And one of the interesting um, kind of parts of that segment was comparing uh, politics to sport and what kind of sport politics is. And his answer um, was really interesting. He said it was probably most like football. Um, There are a lot of players, a lot of specialisation, a lot of hitting, but every once in a while you'll see an opening. Um, So even when he has a serious uh, and funny sense of humour, he comes up with some really interesting, meaningful gems. How did you... um, 
get engaged in that process to come up with such a well-received segment? Well, oh, first of all, before I get to that, that's, that's a really interesting thing you picked up on because I remember standing off to the side of the room as he was answering those questions and he made that analogy. And it just made so much sense to me and I had never heard him say it before. It was almost like he just thought of it. And I was like, oh, this guy is just really smart. It's just one of those reminders that um, he's just got such a depth that, uh, that some politicians don't have. And it, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it was just a really cool moment. But the way I got involved was many years earlier, actually, we had, we had had this blue sky meeting where people were allowed to throw out any idea they wanted. And somebody threw out that he should go on comedians and cars getting coffee, which was this new online show. And nobody was really that into the idea, but it sort of stayed on our list. And then I repitched it about two years later, tethering it to the White House Correspondents' Dinner where the president makes jokes and it's lighthearted. But again, nobody went for it. And then, fortunately, there was this opening in 2015 where they seemed interested. He was still on our list, and I just kept pushing for it. And a number of our staffers are Seinfeld fans, and they were pushing for it. And, you know, he's sort of a personal hero of mine in a weird way. Um, so it was one of my favorite days at the White House, and it was an all-day shoot, and I had helped write the opening portion um, with some jokes, but then the rest of it was really ad-libbed, and it was just a bizarre experience sort of, you know, arguing with Jerry Seinfeld on the South Lawn of the White House about what's funny, and he, by the way, won that argument every single time, hands down. Um, I don't even know why I was arguing with him, but it was just this totally crazy experience. Like I was saying before, the weird stuff that you have no idea you're going to get into when you're working at the White House. And our goal for this was really just to show the president being a guy, just being a human. Um, and we, we filmed it in early December, but we weren't going to release it until the holidays because that's sort of when, at least my theory was, people don't want to talk about politics. They don't even want to hear about policy. They just want something that's lighthearted and makes them feel good after. And I remember right after it aired, uh, I went on to check all the comments and they were overwhelmingly positive. But my favorite one was from this guy who's a Republican, and he said, you know, I'm a Republican. I've never voted for Barack Obama, but he seems cool. I could get a beer with him. And that's all we were trying to do with that interview, um, and it really worked, and I'm just so glad that it, that we actually did it. It was sort of a dream come true. Yeah, it's a real triumph. And, I mean, I'm really surprised, but not so surprised to hear that a lot of that was ad-libbed because he's just so eloquent, um, not in his speech, and also those jokes were pretty wicked. Um, and just finally, I want to close out this chat uh, with a, a brief mention of Donald Trump because he is, I guess, a point of measurement against your experience with uh, a Democrat, uh, President Barack Obama, he obviously being Republican, but, uh, you know, not necessarily a Republican. Um, and, uh, and I mean, when t- President Trump uh, won, and you, you write about this um, in the book, and it's also in a New Yorker article, um, what was the feeling in the room? And, and I mean, could you just explain, I guess, how Obama um, brought you all together and how you kind of rallied uh, in such a despairing time? Because I know a lot of people know where they were yep. when they found this news out and were quite shocked by it. Right. Well, so we were in, um, we were in the West Wing and we were having a party <laughs> in the press secretary's office for the, what we all assumed would be the election of Hillary Clinton. And we had begun drinking uh, and just having a fun time. And then, you know, the results started to come in and we started drinking some more because we were getting nervous. 
And then as it got really late and things actually started looking bad, uh, some semblance of shock began to set in for a lot of us. I know I found myself out in the Rose Garden uh, in the pitch black at like midnight or 1 a.m., basically just sitting on the ground with a cracked glass of bourbon, just like couldn't believe that this was how my time at the White House was ending. Um, I was really caught off guard. But what was so interesting was the next morning, uh, it was raining, which I thought was a little bit, you know, it was very appropriate, but it was almost as if we were in some bad movie. Um, and I walked into the White House, and we were all back where we were the night before. We had been partying in the press secretary's office, and we were all there. People were crying. Everybody was pretty somber. Um, and then suddenly the president's assistant popped in and said, the president wants to see you all in his office. And so we all walked over, shuffled over to the Oval Office. Um, and there were some kids who were brand new, to not brand new, but, you know, had been there for only six months and then never stepped foot once in the Oval Office. And then the president um, and the vice president were standing by the Resolute desk, and we all, we all um, flanked sort of the size of the Oval. And he gave us this pep talk about how, you know, it's not the end of the world. Hope is called for most in times of defeat, not your victories. Um, and he told us that he wanted to give a speech to the country, you know, saying what he just told us. And it had suddenly stopped raining. It was very, you know, it was filmic. It was like out of the movie, and it had stopped raining. And he looked out to the Rose Garden and said, and I want to do it in the Rose Garden. I don't want to do it inside because the Rose Garden's more optimistic. Uh, and he asked us if we agreed, and we said, yes, we did. And it was just this, this moment that was, uh, he was calming all of us down and letting us know it was going to be okay. Um, and it was really a moving, moving moment, uh, sad moment, but an interesting way to end. So I really did feel compelled, you know, to put pen to paper and write that down. And that's where the New Yorker article came from. And then it flanks, uh, or it bookends the book too, like you mentioned. Yeah. And there were certainly some tears in the room. So I'm told as well. Yes, I was, uh, I, <laughs> I was ugly crying in the Oval Office, which is also <laughs> a memory I'll carry with me forever. <laughs> <laughs> Triumph. Uh, and there were photos too. So my, my coworkers like to send them around towards the end of the administration. Oh, great. In my place. Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Pat. Yeah. Um, you've been so generous with your time and really generous in writing of this course. memoir. It's really an important um, document into your life and also the life of someone in the White House working closely with President Obama. And, uh, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That was Pat Kinane. He's the author of a forthcoming book called West Winging It, an unpresidential memoir. It's out in Australia through Affirm Press. And Pat is also uh, flying down today uh, for an appearance at the Wheeler Centre tonight. Uh, he'll be in conversation with Sally Warhaft um, for their regular Fifth Estate series. So if you're lucky and you already have a ticket to that event, well done. Uh, it is sold out, but you you never know, um, people might not be able to rock up. So, um, you know, you can try your luck and you may get to see Pat in person tonight. Uh, so do check out that memoir. It's a really great read. And uh, if you want to pre-order it, I think you can now. And it's coming out in Australia on the 8th of May. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.